Wisconsin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org For Radio Catskill, this is Rosie Starr. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard's Star Talk highlights Cassiopeia, the mother of Andromeda. Jeffrey Rose from Wild Yarrow Farm in Koshekton, New York, offers guidance on mid-May preparation for our garden beds. Wetting our appetite for this year's Festival of the Founding Fish on May 20th, 2023, we'll hear remarks from last year's Shad Festival 2022 in Barryville and Narrowsburg, New York. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country, but first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Texas National Guard members and Department of Public Safety troopers have set up barbed wire along the U.S. side of the Rio Grande in Brownsville, across from a migrant camp in Mexico. It's part of an effort to deter migrants from swimming across the river in an attempt to seek asylum after the policy known as Title 42 ended Thursday night. Texas Public Radio's Stephanie Carpi reports. While most people were denied the chance to seek asylum when Title 42 was in place, there is a lot of confusion whether their odds are any better now that the restrictions are lifted. Raquel Garrido is 23 and from Venezuela. She says someone told her it was possible to cross to the U.S. without law enforcement patrolling. She has her 10-month-old son with her and is hesitant. She said, I don't know whether to go through the river. It's not so much the river, it's the barbed wire. Governor Greg Abbott's controversial Operation Lone Star program uses the Texas National Guard to arrest migrants on state trespassing charges to deter them from crossing. I'm Stefania Corpi in Matamoros, Mexico. The last day of campaigning is underway in Turkey ahead of tomorrow's presidential election. The longtime leader, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, is facing what's being called the toughest challenge in his career. He spoke at a rally heard here through an interpreter. On Sunday, you must protect the ballot box in order to protect the call to prayer, our flag, and the legacy of our martyrs. I call on the students, women, disabled people, and all citizens of this country. Things may go wrong at the ballot box, but the cost would be very heavy. The Islamist leader is trailing in the opinion polls. After three days of meetings in Japan, finance ministers from the seven largest industrial nations agreed today to continue with support of Ukraine as it fights the Russian invasion, including sanctions against Russia. China says it will send a special diplomatic envoy to Kiev next week to promote an end to Russia's war in Ukraine. But NPR's John Ruwich reports Western countries are skeptical of China acting as a neutral peace broker. The Chinese government's special representative on Eurasian affairs is a longtime diplomat named Li Hui. He's been in the role since 2019 after spending a decade as ambassador to Russia. On Monday, Li heads to Ukraine, Poland, France, Germany, and Russia, according to the foreign ministry. A ministry spokesman says the purpose is to communicate with all parties on a political solution to the Ukrainian crisis. Chinese officials say Beijing wants to see 
see an end to the war, but China's relationship with Russia has deepened over the past year, and it's refused to criticize Moscow for the invasion. U.S. officials have even said they think the Chinese government has considered sending arms to Russia to support the war effort, a claim Beijing denies. John Ruich, NPR News, Shanghai. This is NPR News from Washington. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farm and Country. Coming up on today's show, Jeffrey Rose from Wild Yarrow Farm in Coshecton, New York, offers us guidance on mid-May preparation for our garden beds. Wetting our appetite for this year's Festival of the Founding Fish on May 20th, 2023, we'll hear remarks from last year's Shad Festival in Barryville and Narrowsburg, New York. But first, here is Keith Hubbard's Star Talk. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. For Farm and Country, I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. In honor of Mother's Day tomorrow, let us talk about the one mother that is in the night sky. Cassiopeia circles the North Star every night on the opposite side of the sky as the Big Dipper. She joins Cepheus, Draco, Ursa Major, and Ursa Minor as the five circumpolar constellations in the night sky. The constellation's five brightest stars form a W in the sky, which makes it very easy to see. Cassiopeia was the queen of Ethiopia, who boasted that she was more beautiful than sea nymphs called Nereids. This angered the Nereids, and they turned to Poseidon to seek their revenge on Cassiopeia. Poseidon sent the sea monster Cetus to wreak havoc on the coast of the kingdom. To appease Poseidon and save his kingdom, Cepheus the king chained his daughter Andromeda to a rock as sacrifice to Cetus. Andromeda was rescued by the hero Perseus and later married him. All of the major characters of this myth can be found in the same general direction of the sky. The queen is depicted sitting on her throne and for half the year she is upside down as punishment for her vanity. The constellation harbors three stars with known planets and one of the most distant stars visible to the naked eye at 10,000 light years away. When you head outside this week, look for the distinct W of Cassiopeia, the only mother in the sky. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. For Radio Catskill, this is Rosie Starr in Coshecton, New York. I'm at Wild Yarrow Farm. It's mid-May. The weather is a bit chaotic. But I stopped by to say hello to Jeffrey Rose to ask advice on what's to plant in our gardens here and now. He keeps a greenhouse full of some very unusual varieties of heirloom and open pollinated vegetables, and he practices organic principles. 
Jeffrey, say hello to our audience and uh, tell us what to do now. Hi, Rosie. Thank you so much for coming by today. One of the things about gardening is understanding time, understanding each plant knows its own time. It knows when to flourish. The dividing line really is when our last frost is. There are certain things that are you can plant before and there's things you can plant after. The frost is generally around Memorial Day is when that's your safe bet. Some say it's the full moon closest to the end of May, but in any case, it's right around that time. Now, there are certain things you can put in as early as April. Uh, poppies, in particular, really flourish if you put them in in early April. I've had snow fall on them, and they've still really come through. They seem to like the cold, and they don't like to be transplanted, so moving them early is a good idea. There are also snapdragons can also take the cold. You can get a head start by putting them in. For vegetables, we're really talking about the alliums. By that, I mean the onions, both onions, leeks, shallots, chives. They can all also go in earlier before the last frost. Lettuce, kale, collard greens, they can also go in. And spinach does better in the cold. You don't want to plant it after the frost because it'll bolt. By bolting, that's when it sends up flowers. And lettuce also, when it gets warmer, the lettuce bolts and sends up flowers and it becomes bitter. You mentioned that we have a lot of varieties. One of the more interesting varieties of lettuce that I have this year is called Celtus with a C. It's also called a stem lettuce. And when it bolts, it sends up a fat stalk that you can then steam, and it has a flavor like asparagus. So it adds a little extra. You can be eating the lettuce greens beforehand, and then once it bolts, you can then cook the stem. Another thing that you should do now before it's time to put in your tomatoes and peppers and eggplants after the frost, get into the garden and do some of the cleanup that we all inevitably don't get to in the fall. Mm -hmm. I'm guilty of it myself. There's patches of the garden. You think, oh, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. And then the spring comes around and it's full of weeds, but there's time. You can get out there now, get your bed prepared, get some compost into it, feed the soil to make sure that, you know, you've got good nutrients for your plants. For fertilizers, you know, we only use organic fertilizers and there are different formulations. You'll see numbers like NPK on the fertilizers. That refers to the nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium content. There's a lot to look at there, but for the garden, we use a 457 to bring things along from Fertrell and all organic fertilizer. You can also mix in compost. It's a good idea to every year to cut in some fresh compost, either compost you've made yourself or bagged compost. They sell wonderful bagged composts that are fully organic, and you can dump a few bags into your bed and stir it up, and you'll be ready to go with your tomatoes and peppers. Thank you so much for this advice. And I have to say, I've been following what you say. I am impressed with how my upright rosemary is growing right now. <laughs> and also the strawberries. I bought Italian alpine strawberries. They're fun. They're another thing that can go in right now. Since they grow alpine, <laughs> they can take the cold and they can take the shade too. Our strawberry patch, they're already about a foot across each plant this year. 
Okay, well, we're going to keep in touch as the season goes. I know we have a short season here, so we're all anxious to get in the soil, get our hands dirty, and watch things grow. Thanks for having me, Rosie. Always nice to see you. Okay. For Radio Catskill and Farm and Country, it's Rosie Starr on New Turnpike A in Coshecton, New York. And I have to say, I recently went on wildyarrowfarm.net and was very impressed with Jeffrey's webpage. Some events are worth repeating. In my opinion, the Festival of the Founding Fish is one of them. In mid-May of 2022, opening day of the Barryville Farmer's Market shared the spotlight with shadfish. It was a hot, sunny day, and the event was well attended. I cruised around with microphone in hand and caught some remarks that may whet your appetite for this year's 2023 Shad Festival of the Founding Fish. Here is event director John Pizzolatto. Hey everybody, it's Johnny. I'm uh, the producer of the Shad Fest along with the Fort Delaware and the Delaware Company. We're really excited. And there's events all up and down the byway from Hancock to Port Jervis. So we're, we're really excited with how it's going and laying the groundwork for Shad Fest uh, 2023 and beyond. The Delaware Company is obviously dedicated to the history of the area, the history of the Shad Run, all the wonderful um, historical notes that come along with Shad, and, and all the wonderful things that make our region great. For me, like looking at the entertainment, I wanted to sort of tether together what the Delaware Company calls revolution to revolution. This is obviously the groundwork and the backdrop for the Woodstock Festival, and then we have the revolution battle mini sink we have a lot of history in the area the shad have their own connections to george washington who was a wonderful angler and led his troops to the river during a shad run so you know we're, we're really trying to tether together the revolution to revolution kind of byway mission and all the synergy between all the the best of sullivan county and i feel like we really did it and you know we're celebrating a lot of local makers a lot of local vendors and then bringing in some top talent we have uh, annika sindovic from nordic preserves doing shad tasting she's sort of of our celebrity shad chef so we had to get the shad in there for sure but yeah i feel really excited to have ignited something that i think has some staying power it feels really good Oh, it does, and we look forward to this as an annual event. There's all sorts of exciting activities. If you go to festivalofthefoundingfish.com, you can see the full schedule of events. We're really excited. I, I feel like uh, it takes a village or two or three or seven. <laughs> Thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you, Rosie. Annika, I'm from Sweden. I'm a part Norwegian, part Swedish. Shadfest that's launching this year for Barryville and here we're providing some free samples of the shad roe that I prepared in a Norwegian tradition with creme fraiche, dill and lemon and then we brined and smoked a bunch of shad fillets they're brined with maple syrup from here and a little anise and lemon and it's been cold smoked Doing a lot of these, like, uh, curing, drying, pickled shad, done, like, the way we would do herring with creme fraiche and herbs. And uh, there's kind of like a take on a gravlax, but with shad. And it's beets and horseradish and shad chowder. And uh, what's fun about the shad to me is that it's very, very similar to herring, excepting the size, of course. And the amount of bones. 
it's been a little bit of a challenge. I think also that there are rituals and celebrations in conjunction with it. It's a little bit like, depending on the part of the country where it runs for the seasons, it announces a little bit more than spring. It's like life has come back again. So the shad is a symbol of that. Hi, my name is Nancy Tora. When I first came to Pennsylvania a long time ago, I lived in Lackawaxen and did a lot of shad fishing down in the Lackawaxen River just up, up from Zane Gray, and we smoked our shad. First we had electric smokers and then charcoal smokers, and if you can do it, there's nothing like smoked shad. It's delicious. Just watch the bones. Lots of tiny little bones. You have to be careful. It's almost impossible to debone it before you smoke it, so just watch that but it's a delicacy and pairs well really with cider any kind of light white wine is going to be great with it spritzers would be perfect okay tell me how you caught the fish well we used to have this banana boat and you could get really shallow and we would troll for them off the back of the boat what I love about shad fishing is it's a really good fight they're going to put up a fight and that to me that's part of the fun of going fishing is that big fight and then finally getting them into the boat what did you use for bait eels we used to go up in Honesdale and it, next there was a creek next to a churchyard and we would dig up eels along uh, on the banks of where if it's still really muddy yeah you could dig up the eels so I'm almost positive it was yeah I think it was eels we used I noticed that shad is darker than trout in meat yes it is when especially when you smoke it it's going to be almost red it's going to be Almost like a salmon, a little darker than a salmon color after you smoke it. Whereas trout, it's going to stay that kind of white-ish color on, on that meat. Did you use any particular hardwood or spices? Apple chips or cherry chips were just amazing. And really just some brine. You, you soak it shad in brine water vinegar a lot of salt pepper and that's it and then the wood flavor of your choice so once you smoke it how long is it before you eat it and how long did it take to smoke smoking takes eight to ten hours in the equipment we would use and i'm the type that once it's done i'm eating it and you really don't have to wait because it's already smoked, it's pretty much dried out. There's no then extra drying time that you need. So yeah, I would eat it right away. <laughs> it sounds like it's very much part of history with the colonialists and uh, the Native Americans. Um, so when folks are doing that around here, it's a continuation of that. Exactly, exactly. Especially uh, the Native American population that was here, that's basically all their meats to preserve them were either salted or smoked. And the same with the fish. It was a way of them to preserve them and have them for months to come. So, yeah, so you're honoring the history of the region and the shad. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Is there anything you'd like to add before we close? 
just listen come out all summer there are many many farmers markets happening every weekend there's festivals come down and enjoy the river whether you're up in Narrowsburg you're down here in Barryville you're down in Shahola or down at the Zangre just come out and enjoy what's here Hi, my name is Peyton Neckage. I'm a park ranger at Upper Delaware Scenic and Recreational River. Tell the audience what you know about this species, shad. Thank you for coming here and enjoying this beautiful day with us. The American shad is the largest member of the herring family. And one shad may travel up to 12,000 miles in its entire lifetime. So just imagine starting all the way in seawater. You're going to start in the Atlantic Ocean, and you're going to travel all the way to places like the Delaware River or the Hudson. And here you go to spawn, and a female can have anywhere between 100,000 to 600,000 eggs. And that's in one season. However, only one egg out of the 100,000 may survive. So it's a tough life being a fish out here. And there are no fishing regulations when it comes to the size or the weight of an American shad. However, for Pennsylvania and the state of New York, each daily limit catch is about three per person. And what is the average lifetime of a shad? Females, it's a little less. It's about three to four, where males, it's five to six years. Okay. And what is the weight size by the time folks catch them? On average, at least in the Delaware River, it can be about 12 inches to 24 inches, and anywhere from two pounds to six pounds. Have you seen any difference lately in the population of shad in the Delaware River? Slowly but surely, the numbers are rising. However, they are still kind of on a decline due to water pollution, um, predation by the bald eagles. They love to eat a lot of shad. In general, with all these storms coming down, it's making it very difficult for the fish to spawn and migrate this way, along with dams that are further up north. So it's kind of a mixed blessing that the eagle population has increased and it has an effect on the shad population. Yes, exactly. As we all know, in the 70s, DDT was a big issue. However, with the help of the American shad, a lot of nesting pairs are having more and more offspring and they are actually increasing in population, which is great for us on the Delaware River. Yes, it is. Does the water temperature affect shad? It does, yes. Usually once the water hits about 50 degrees Fahrenheit, that's when the American shad internally they know to start migrating up to the Delaware River. And besides the internal clock with the temperature, they know how to do it based on daylight. So once more daylight is out, they know they have to come migrate and they will start to spawn in shallow pools, release their eggs, and just knowing that it's dark time, it's time to start spawning. Before we close, is there anything else you'd like to add? Maybe look up in the sky, you'll see some eagles, and take a look in the water, and you'll see the American Shad Run. Part of the day's events took place at Fort Delaware, and historian John Conway was available to share his perspective on the importance of shad. 
My name is John Conway. I'm the Sullivan County historian. I'm also the president of the Delaware Company. This is the inaugural Festival of the Founding Fish. A lot of people have no idea how important shad is and was. And of course, being the historian, the attraction for me is the historical hook, if you will. Shad for centuries has played an important part. The colonial settler depended upon that shad run to live, really. And there's a great story attached to the shad run in uh, 1777 when uh, George Washington's army was at Valley Forge and they had been through a terrible winter. They were starving and uh, there was a fortuitous early run of shad. And what a lot of people don't realize is that George Washington was a commercial shad fisherman. And in fact, it was probably of all of his businesses, and he had many, the shad fishing operation was probably the most lucrative of all of his businesses. So he knew that when this shad run started, that it could be the potential savior for his army. And so he sent General Sullivan, for which our county is named, out into the school kill where uh, Valley Forge was located. And he and a few men thrashed around with their horses and drove the shad into these quickly uh, built nets. And they feasted on shad and you know, that really kind of saved their life. So in a way, you know, things could have ended very differently except for that shad run. And again, the colonial settlers in general learned to uh, smoke and salt the shad so it would be preserved through the winter. And, you know, when hunting was scarce, they lived on the shad. So it has a, a huge historical component, as well as the fact that commercial shad fishing on the Delaware was, was big for many, many years. Shad runs became less as the years went by, but they're making a bit of a comeback now. And the Delaware is an incredibly important river for shad because it's not dammed. So many of the, the rivers that shad used to populate are dammed. So the shad population, it's kind of a catch-22. Because they couldn't get up those rivers, the shad population would drop because that's how they spawn. So the fewer shad just fed on itself. So they're making a comeback now. Some of the dams have been taken out in certain rivers, and we're beginning to see the shad population increase a little bit. So, But you're right. People people are not aware of shad. Getting back to the history of it all, uh, the Native Americans were shad fishermen also, and they taught the colonials how to use other parts of the shad. Like the, the natives would use the, the bones and, you know, shad, if you've ever eaten shad, you know, a lot of bones in there. They would use them for needles or other things, and they would use shad for fertilizer. Washington was a farmer. He grew all kinds of crops, including tobacco, but they used the shad to fertilize. So, you know, the colonials, no one really thought about being green back then, but that's how they lived. It was, you didn't waste anything. So that's the real true definition of being green is, you know, not wasting. You know, the Lenape were not recycling cans or anything, but they knew how to live with very low impact on the land because they believed that the land was something they were borrowing from their descendants. And a lot of the colonials, although obviously the European sensibilities were very different, they cut down the trees here and and that's how the, the settlement prospered from timber rafting and whatnot. They were a lot greener than we might give them credit for in a lot of ways. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you again, Rosie, for giving me an opportunity to talk about my favorite subject, Sullivan County history, and it's always a pleasure. Presented by the Delaware Company, this festival offers many activities from May 19th through May 28th. 
Info for the Festival of the Founding Fish is available in the River Reporter. For selected event tickets information, visit MyRiverTickets.com. We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteer Keith Hubbard. Special thanks goes to our guests, Jeffrey Rose from Wild Yarrow Farm in Coshecton, New York, and participants from the 2022 Founding Fish Day Shad Festival. Organizer-director Johnny Pizzolata and presenter-historian John Conway, chef Annika Sundavik, local enthusiast Nancy Tora, and National Park Service Peyton Neckage. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening local to Farm and Country and supporting Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Listen on air at 90.5 FM on your phone or smart speaker or online at WJFFradio.org. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org The death of Jordan Neely on a New York City subway train exposed many failures. Most of all, a collective failure to see his humanity. But one in every 14 Americans experiences homelessness at some point. So this week on Notes from America, we'll turn to Houston to learn how one city is finding a solution by just getting people into homes. Sunday evening at 6, live on Radio Catskill. This week on This American Life, when Sarah and her 